risk management is always about embracing risk, understanding it, and actually helping to manage that going forward. But you certainly will never have a crystal ball to eliminate it. Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode. Today, I'm thrilled to have Adrienne Bellhum. As you will soon find out, she is from North Texas, as you can tell from her accent. So, Adrian, first of all, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thank you so much, Tom. Could you tell us a little bit about your professional background and then what is your current role or roles? Well, that's not the most exciting career path, but I became a chartered accountant or CPA after university because I needed a job, but I soon realized having a job wasn't for me. So I've actually been consulting quite a long time since I was about 26 years old. I'm quite a bit older than that now. I own a company called Risk Oversight, which is all about high value internal control programs. We do other projects, but the basis of our work is high value, non-template based internal control programs for mid-sized companies. So you are talking to a full-blown internal control geek. Uh-oh. I can internal control out. <laughs> so I'm a lawyer by professional training. And when I was CCO and someone would come talk to me about internal controls, I would say, oh, you don't understand. I'm a lawyer. I do cool stuff. Those people down the hall, they do internal controls. They're in finance. I don't deal with them. And then in about September of 2014, I read something called the COSO Internal Framework for Risk Management or for Internal Controls. And I said wrote this. This is about compliance. This is the greatest thing I've ever seen. I became a complete convert. And so I would start going to conferences and talk about internal controls to lawyers. And about 2%, well, actually about 98%, I should say, and then the first 30 seconds, their eyes were rolling inside. <laughs> there was always an internal control person in there, and they were going, yeah, right on. It's a long-winded way of saying I've come around to completely believe that the backbone of any compliance program is internal controls and that it doesn't matter whether you're an internal control specialist like yourself, doesn't matter whether you're a lawyer, doesn't matter what your title is, you have to understand your company's internal controls. And it's why I was so interested to visit with you on that topic. So you introduced a risk oversight a little bit, but could you tell us a little bit more about uh, what you guys do, the types of customers you had. You said you did bespoke work. So are you sort of brought in on large projects where someone needs a comprehensive review or is it something else? So the bulk of our client, well, they're actually all over the map. We work with chemical companies, smaller not-for-profits, larger public companies, but the bulk of our work is in oil and gas. Don't worry, I'm not evil. That's just a joke. Calgary and two Texan here. We work primarily with junior and mid-sized oil and gas companies, drilling companies, service companies, pipelines, engineering specialized in that area. Our expertise is actually delivering to this mid-sized company that I think some of these larger frameworks and firms are better at addressing. Actually, a lot of the textbooks are really geared to the larger organizations. So we have come in to really do a great job to that market. So I um, spent 40 years in and around the energy industry, 
spent a lot of time in Calgary, a lot of time north of Calgary. You cannot say introduce evil to a Texan. It's a wonderful industry. And it, just like Texas, Alberta is wonderfully entrepreneurial because of oil and gas as well. Amen to that. So I wanted to maybe ask, because many of our listeners have heard this term, but they may be confused about it, and that's gap analysis. Is a gap analysis still a tool that's used by someone like yourself? And how can you use a gap analysis to develop a fit-for-purpose program tailored to a company-specific needs around either internal controls and or compliance? Well, gap analysis is very, again, fit-for-purpose. We're kind of drilling on that operative word term today. I can hand you a control matrix or governance structure that I think is very appropriate for a mid-sized oil and gas company, by the way, or a service company. There's a lot of models that you develop over your professional experience to support that, whether it's risk matrices, control matrices, and a variety of other templates. I'd even drill to something more basic that I think is so important in internal controls. It's the very basic concepts of design and operating effectiveness. And that is design is, do I have the right processes and controls? And operating effectiveness is, are they working? And although most companies do operating effectiveness very well, in my experience, the whole idea of design can sometimes be overlooked. Design is actually where all your professional judgment, your understanding of systems, process, policy, good documentation come to play. And where I could see actually gap analysis, you make or break gap analysis is on strong design understanding. So one of the things that I've really come around to understanding is previously I would look to someone like yourself or an internal control specialist to do the internal controls design. But what I've really come around to understanding that in many ways, the user experience is a critical component of overall design. So having a non-compliance specialist, whether it's someone from the business unit, whether from a different corporate discipline or function, whether it's legal as a part of an overall design team, that could be a big plus. Would that be consistent with what you see as well? Absolutely. So design is synonymous to me with best practice or just making your company better over time. Design is not just we've watched the process and it's working as documented. It's actually about incremental improvements. So the, the better the stakeholder engagement from your different teams, you're actively improving design. And that's actually how you bolster a better internal control program or compliance program, whatever type of program you're running over time. I have maintained for some time that a more effective compliance program leads to more efficient internal controls, which leads to greater profitability or ROI. So I was very pleased to see you talk about, or your organization talk about internal controls as bringing significant value back to a company, as opposed to being seen as a compliance cost. Could you maybe expand on why you have those views? Sure. Well, I mean, climb up a bit on my soapbox, but I have five principles that I believe in very strongly. And the first one is you should think good habits and not theory. So in internal control world, especially SOX compliance, there can be a tendency to get into very serious theoretical discussions. But in practice, internal controls should be more about good habits, like brushing your teeth or making your bed. Really, I mean, stuff like approvals, access, good documentation are good habits 
for an organization that actually make them stronger overall. My second is be an accountability partner, not a cop. That is a principle that I, my belief is the programs where you're adding accountability, where people are giving you honest feedback, not policing them, are typically more effective or more value driving. My third is about continuous improvement, not pass-fail. I don't think we have a huge focus on pass-fail and lots of discussion around deficiencies and internal control, but we can almost overlook the bigger picture of whether you're improving. So that's principle I believe in. Number four, I call keep it interesting, stupid, which just means don't rinse and repeat. Don't do the exact same thing last year. Your compliance program is just going through the motions, asking the same question, testing the same things that will limit your ability to add value. And my last one is be a problem solver, not a box checker, which which is all about aiming for solutions in the organization, not just checking the box on compliance. So that's a little bit of my soapbox. I think with those five principles, and you could read more about it, those are tricks to making your compliance program higher value overall. Well, you're speaking to someone who calls himself the compliance evangelist. So anytime you want to get on your soapbox with me, I'm going to listen. (laughs) That's good. So your company also helps in a variety of other areas. So I was particularly intrigued around your help with boards. And typically, how does risk oversight help a company as a board of directors fulfill their oversight obligation around, I'm going to say compliance, but it could be a wide variety of other risk management issues? One way we support is through strong entity-level controls. You actually mentioned COSO, so I'll, I'll tack on to that as well. Your entity-level control review is like having an annual physical for your governance practices, in my opinion. And the COSO model is very good. There's a lot of great practices in it. One way we help is often to get right size. That COSO model, I think, has about 200 lines in it. So actually very difficult to implement for smaller companies. So our one way that we work with boards and management is to understand the best practices that kind of fall out of that model and other recognized governance best practices is overarching like board mandates or scheduling the right topics. Secondly, strong board minutes, I believe, is a huge part of good governance as well. Budget and forecast and management oversight, risk management. My belief is that you need to understand kind of these core areas and understand how to ask the right questions to assess them properly and make sure they improve over time. And it's a little more than just downloading the templates and asking those questions. It's a strong understanding of these basics and continually assessing them and making them better each year is one way of bolstering uh, a lot of practices within the board and management. Uh, You mentioned board minutes. I don't get a lot of people who bring that topic up. So in a blog post, you talked about two simple rules to guide your board minutes. What do you suggest around board minutes? So I'm talking to a lawyer here, and I've actually gone a bit head-to-head with lawyers some of my clients, because I do believe minutes are so important in governance. It should not be just covering your butt or just about administration. So I will try to get on my soapbox as well. The two best practices that I believe in are the Goldilocks principle, which is actually a great principle for all documentation. It's just about having the right level, not too much or too little 
for the most effective documentation. And the second rule, the business judgment rule, which is about proving that the board did due diligence or management did its due diligence, probably the more nebulous and where we see the most gaps with our clients. It is where you have sufficient evidence that people followed up or asked the right questions that proved they did due diligence that in that situation. And that one, there's probably the most debate and some lawyers are very anti-adding any detail for fear of disclosing something they shouldn't or getting caught later. But there's also another risk of not proving that you acted in an appropriate manner. So from a governance perspective, we do push our clients to really hit that business judgment rule, not certainly with board minutes, but actually could apply to deeper levels of governance or documentation across your company. Are you familiar with the Caremark Doctrine from the state of Delaware around boards? I have not. I will look it up, though. Let me tell you what it is, because you have hit on exactly what the Delaware courts say companies need to do. The Caremark Doctrine says that whatever the major risks for a company are, you have to manage those risks. So Boeing airline manufactures airplanes. There's an ice cream company in Texas. It was food safety and kind of everything in between. And they have said, as part of the risk oversight responsibility, there must be documentation of your decisions. Now, that's the Delaware Supreme Court. Just this week, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission said that companies, when they fire CEOs and claw back part of their salaries, they have to explain the logic of their reasoning. And if they fire a CEO for a code of conduct or other internal reason for violation, then they do not engage in clawbacks. They have to explain that. So what you have described is the solution to both a regulatory requirement, SEC, and the Delaware courts requirement under the Caremark Doctrine. So you just keep arguing with those lawyers because you're spot on. <laughs> well, it is a bit of a fight. Yeah. My main challenge with clients is actually getting them to write enough, especially external counsel when they're we're taking minutes. They're more, uh, they're very fearful of writing anything down. So you have some blog posts on your site. You've got some great resources, but I wanted to ask you about a few of your blog posts because number one, one of them has perhaps the greatest blog post title ever. And it's why coffee is a great risk management tool. So I am a prolific coffee drinker. <laughs> 12 cups before noon, the typical day. So I want to know how I'm engaging coffee as a risk management tool. Well, I entirely ripped that one off from Dr. Karen Hardy, who is a big risk management expert and a wonderful speaker that I heard at a conference. She articulated what I believe very strongly that coffee, she described her story about implementing fancy systems, fancy dashboards enforcement, but she realized that it was a cup of coffee that actually gave her the most results or the best the best feedback. That is exactly the same. You could say that coffee is the best governance or compliance tool as well. Usually the best recommendations or feedback or insight or issues that we find come from the ability to connect one-on-one with someone. It's not from fancy data analytics and stuff like that, people will disclose when they're comfortable. Coffee is synonymous for strong connection and interviewing skills and 
the ability to get information out of other people. Let me turn to another blog post because you talked about documentation. And I have maintained since about 2010 that the three most important parts of any compliance program are the following. Document, document, document. I say that every time I speak. I try to say it during podcasts. But you really took it a step further because you looked at stages of documentation and came up with one called optimized documentation. And so I wanted to ask you about that because it was a very sophisticated analysis. Perhaps we could devote an entire another podcast to that topic. But what is, quote, just right documentation, end quote? So I write a lot about documentation best practices. Not It's certainly not limited to internal controls. It's, it's actually meant for the whole knowledge base workforce. But stage four, just right, really means that documentation is driving you forward. It actually is improving what you're doing. It doesn't mean every document is perfect and your metadata structure is immaculate. It just means things are moving you forward. For example, in your compliance program, if you issue strong reports and management reads them and then takes action on them, I would say that's stage four because you're genuinely using documentation to drive you forward and make improvements. If your board minutes are actually helping your organization, not just an administrative exercise, you have hit stage four. Stage four is beyond just, I would checking the box, doing what your lawyers tell you or your auditors tell you or what complies with regulatory. It's actually a little bit of a step forward that you're tapping into how documentation makes you more productive and drives you forward. You've also written a blog post about reimagining your risk management program, and you list four principles. So I was wondering if you just could go through those and give us a word or two about each principle. Sure. So the first principle is very similar to documentation. Risk management is about action. So I've implemented extremely simple risk programs. It might be a one-page board update. But if the board and management are taking many steps every quarter, even without spending a ton of money, that's a great practice. On the flip side, I have seen really elaborate risk matrices that are effectively shelf exercises. My metric is always, whether it's risk management, internal controls, or compliance, if you're actually taking action, that's a good sign that you're doing the right thing. The second is risk management is about connection. And I certainly taking from Dr. Karen Hardy, it's the same idea. Connection one-on-one is one of the best ways of finding risks in your organization. People will tell you what is going wrong if you know how to ask the right questions and know how to connect with people. The third is risk management is about documentation. You can tell a lot about a company's risk profile from their documentation. As a gross generalization, companies that are more risk averse document more. For example, if they're afraid of failing a regulatory requirement, actually you can get the reverse effect. The overkill zone actually can happen when companies are overly concerned about certain requirements. That's a whole other story, but going into the overkill zone on your documentation is not what you need. But even when it comes back to board minutes, I've seen very nervous lawyers that won't put anything in writing. Uh, That's, again, documentation 
is actually a barometer that runs through your organization about how you view risk. And you can learn a lot from taking it with that angle. And my last principle is risk management is not about risk elimination. I don't think risk professionals need to be the Debbie Downer or the tattletale of the schoolyard always trying to stop us from taking more risks. I mean, I don't see a lot of risk managers saying, hell yeah, more risk. It's part of the profession. You tend to see very risk. Actually, people with the word risk in their title are the most risk averse in your organization, unfortunately. But risk management is always about embracing risk, understanding it, and actually helping to manage that going forward. But you certainly will never have a crystal ball to eliminate it. So in addition to your career as an internal control specialist, your work at Risk Oversight, you're a published author. And you've written a book called The 24-Hour Rule. So I was wondering if we might be able to spend a little bit of time. Uh, were you telling us about why you wrote the book and who is it targeted towards? It wasn't one eureka moment, probably a few mini eureka moments. The 24-Hour Rule will be, it's coming out March 7th. It's the first mass market book on documentation best practices. And I wrote it because I felt that was missing. I, I actually always had an interest in documentation, even in university and high school, when I'd watch people taking notes around class. I know it's a bit nerdy. When I entered the workforce as a young chartered accountant, I was also worked for the banks at the time. I remember there was this assumption that we were supposed to know what documentation is about from birth. And I asked my junior lawyer, my lawyer friends and my engineer friends who are also in professions that are heavily dependent on documentation. And they actually said the same thing. There was an assumption we were supposed to just get it. And the training was really not that fun or exciting at the time. And then my third kind of wave of inspiration came in my consulting work when I watched so much waste from lack of documentation, millions of dollars consultants leave, nothing written down, and we'd have to redo things, meetings that would go on in a circle when no one took notes, or a lot of money spent on documentation that we could never find it. So I really felt like there was a need for a fun, interesting, pervasive best practice that are training for today's knowledge workforce that actually transcends industries and all professions, because really we were actually training people, in my opinion, in silos, lawyers are trained one way, accountants, another way, engineers, salespeople, but there is this common best practice that we could do better. Sorry for my long-winded answer, again, on my documentation soapbox. The main market for the book or audience is managers who are looking to solve problems through documentation. This could be a problem is a broad term. It could be regulatory or compliance. It could be taking a company public or you have information locked in people's heads and you need to get it out or you're stuck in a vortex of meetings. Believe it or not, there's a lot of similar skills and disciplines that go into solving problems. And they're all boiled down to these foundational documentation best practices. So it will be out in early March, I believe you said? It's March 7th. It's available for pre-order. Penguin Random House, they're all major retailers right now. You can get your hand on your copy March 7th. I'm happy to send you one. If you're dying to read it earlier, I could probably swing that. <laughs> oh, Adrian, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself, risk oversight, or the 24-hour rule, perhaps. 
where could they go to find out? Well, I'd love to connect with your listeners on LinkedIn at Adrian Bellumer on LinkedIn. My website on governance, risk, and compliance is riskoversight.ca. My documentation training is at bellhumorco.com. And I'd love to connect with anyone who has any questions to ask me. Adrian, this has just been way too much fun. I've really enjoyed this. Uh, I definitely want to get you back when the book's nearing the whole state or a specific pot around the book. So I look forward to you and I continuing this conversation. Thank you so much, Tom. If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review.